I think our potential is always when we're living inside out and allowing that ripple to go where it's going to go. And that's none of your business. Uh, and you start to live a life that's more through you instead of like by you. John Kim is a licensed therapist who pioneered the online life coaching movement eight years ago after going through a divorce, which led him to working with teens struggling with addiction. There, he discovered a passion to create a dialogue about men after learning that the common thread was no one had a dad. We live a fatherless nation. He started a blog called The Angry Therapist and quickly built a devoted following of fans who loved the frank and authentic insights that he freely shared on social media. He pulled the curtain back and showed himself by practicing transparency and sharing his story, something therapists are taught not to do. John became known as an unconventional therapist who worked outside the box by seeing clients at coffee shops, on hikes, and in gyms. He quickly built a coaching team of his own and launched a sister company called Journey, J-R-N-I, creating a new way to help people help people. He is now changing the way we change by sending daily texts and running virtual live wellness classes in TAT Lab. We are here with John Kim. John, I am super excited to have you here. I've uh, been a fan. I've read a lot of your work and I'm really happy to have an opportunity to have you on the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really uh, I appreciate it. And I've been looking at your stuff. I, I, it just seems like you're creating a really important dialogue you know, with guests and also uh, yourself and your stories. So yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think, you know, there was a lot that I kind of saw in my own journey, even though it's very different than yours, there was a lot of similarities. And I really related to kind of how you've kind of broken the mold and really defined your own path, really tried to figure out who you were and what you wanted to live into and kind of the voice that you're providing for men and for humans in general, just to kind of find that authentic self And I know for you, that was a journey. So um, as we've been doing on the podcast, I'd like to go back to the beginning and and have you start by sharing kind of your your early childhood and how that kind of shaped you in your early years. Yeah. Should we go back to the 80s when I was uh, in my wonder years or should we go back to the 70s when I was born in Korea? Yeah. How far back do you want to go back? Yeah, let's go all the way back. I'd love to kind of hear about your parents and kind of what their backgrounds were and how that kind of very early uh, years uh, shaped you too. Yeah, so I was born um, in Korea and uh, we left when I was three and uh, I've got that classic uh, immigrant story where parents saw America as the dream, right? To come to America, education's free, freedom, all that stuff. So um, the stories, they came here with uh, $500 and two children. Funny because uh, our parents, when they brag about how little they came here with, it makes me want to say, well, why did you save up more money? Because $500 is not a lot. <laughs> I don't know how smart that was. Um, but we landed in um, Columbus, Georgia, because my dad uh, was in the military. He was a nom and uh, I think he had military connections there. And the first thing that I remember uh, is not an image, but it's the feeling of uh, racism. It's the feeling of um, not feeling welcome. And I remember even at three, uh, walking into a restaurant with my family and feeling that weird kind of um, fight or flight discomfort. And I think I was getting it from my, my, my parents, you know. So 
we left really fast. I mean, Columbus, Georgia, in 1973 wasn't the, <laughs> the mm-hmm. most, uh, you know. So um, we got into a VW and we uh, came to California. And uh, yeah, and so been in California uh, ever since. Okay, so that's interesting. I just want to kind of click in a little bit on that that early memory of this kind of, you know, feeling different, feeling made to be different, being in the South. And, and at three years old, you're experiencing that. I mean, that, that, that's got to make you feel uh, a certain way at a very young age. Yeah. And, you know, it's a reminder that because when we see kids who are, who are, that are three, we don't think they're going to remember things and, you know, all of that. And I don't remember visuals, but I remember the feeling. And it's also proof that what we feel is a lot more powerful than, you know, what we see as far as experience goes. Um, feelings leave imprints, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, feeling that at age three makes me uh, realize that as humans, uh, how powerful these feelings are at such an early age. You know? mm-hmm. And so then, so you moved to California from there. And, and is that a feeling that you carry with you? It's embodied. How does that play out um, as you move into this next stage of your life? And was it different there? Or did you still feel unique? No, it, I felt, uh, I don't know if it's, um, you know, my parents feeding this image of America to me, or if it was, you know, Coca-Cola advertisements. But I remember as a young kid coming to America and feeling like, um, entering an amusement park, right? And uh, now, like we've made it to paradise, or, or this is, you know, uh, almost like heavenly. And uh, I got caught up in activities like uh, breakdancing, skateboarding, and my parents worked really hard uh, because they didn't speak English well. So my mom was um, working at like a Seven Eleven, you know, fourteen-hour days, held up at gunpoint, stuff like that. And then my dad uh, uh, was pulling cable for uh, uh, for GTE telephone company. Mm-hmm. So they were never home. And so, I, I, you know, we, we, I don't even know if I should be alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just out. I, was, I, I tell people I was raised by folk culture. So mm-hmm. I was out playing and just um, seeking adventure my entire childhood. And my parents were just, you know, working their asses off. And I think their idea of being American was just to buy me things. Mm-hmm. So I, I had the cool jeans and the cool toys and stuff like that. But I didn't get a lot of emotional milk. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that was never home. Mm-hmm. And and um, I'm sorry if you said this, but were you were you alone? Did you have siblings with you? What was your household like? Yeah, it was um, it was just me and my brother. But my brother's about a year and a half older than me. Mm-hmm. And and when you're that close in age, uh, they usually two things happen: either you come become really close to your sibling, or they're like embarrassed of you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, with me, you know, when we were kids, he had his own friends. I had my own friends, and uh, you know, we didn't hang out. Right. So uh, he was older. So he was, you know, um, didn't want his little brother tagging around everywhere, which I totally understand. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I found, I found um, um, companionship in my own friends and community. Yeah. And so this is uh, in the 80s. You you say, you know, that you found uh, kind of pop culture and that was really kind of shaping who you were. Talk a little bit about that because I think the culture and sometimes, you know, maybe I think, you know, for me at least, the idea that you could find yourself in those things was often kind of diminished that, you know, it was supposed to be more formal, an education, a career. Mm -hmm. But, you know, er early on these pop culture, you know, being in a skateboarding culture in California and, you know, breakdancing in the fashion or whatever the music it was, 
Is that starting to really kind of make make a new imprint on you? For me, because I wasn't, you know, academic, I didn't do well in school. I was the uh, kid in science class staring out the window, you know, wondering if I could fly. Like I was always a dreamer. I, I, I think I had ADD. I just wasn't able to concentrate a lot. And so I found connection in activities. So like uh, skateboarding, breakdancing, all of that. And I, I also think on a, on a deeper level, I, I found value there. I found worth. You know, if I can't get A's in school, then maybe spinning on my head would give me more value, right? I mean, definitely gave me more attention. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I guess, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, having become a therapist, I'm sure you've unpacked all of this, but, uh, you know, how important was it to be getting attention? Was that something because your parents were out a lot that you were really seeking, that that was something in hindsight that you can look back and go, yeah, I I was trying to get that emotional fuel I wasn't getting and and I was getting it, you know, by, you know, breakdancing and being out in the streets? Yeah, uh, uh, 110%. I think because I wasn't getting the attention, the, the safe space, uh, what I call the emotional milk from, from dad and mom at that young of an age, you know, it's a, it's a basic need. So I got that through uh, the older kids, through being accepted, through chasing girls. And so in order to do that, in order to fit in, especially being Korean and a minority, I had to offer them an ability. Right. So you can either be really funny and fit in, or you could be good at something. And so for many people, it's athletes, like it, for many people, sports, you know, stuff like that. Uh, for me, it happened to be uh, breakdancing and, and skateboarding and, you know, BMX bikes and all that. And that was kind of my ticket into uh, being quote unquote cool and accepted. Uh, and I think that was, yeah, that was everything for me. Cause if I didn't have that, I, I would, I would feel less than. Mm-hmm. And so, so how far did you ride that? I mean, was that like kind of through your middle school, high school years or kind of what was, what was that stage of your life? Dude, I'm still riding it now. Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a little dirt bike poster behind me. Uh, I mean, it's more authentic now, but yeah. I, you know, I, I think in the eighties, because in the eighties, uh, Asian people weren't cool, right? This is before the Fast and Furious. This is when there were, um, I don't know if you remember Long Dong Dong from sure. like the John Hughes movies. Yeah. Um, you know, we were kind of portrayed in media as nerds. And, uh, I uh, grew up in, um, predominantly Caucasian, uh, some Hispanic, uh, neighborhood. And I, I, when I started getting attention or acceptance through ability, like breakdancing or skateboarding, um, I realized that was my ticket into not being Asian, right? To it was almost like uh, I got to be "quote unquote" white. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I definitely want to come back to the comment about how you're still doing it now because I think that's really important. You know, at times, you know, these things can kind of look like phases or fads, but really, you know, it, it can be who we are and it can actually really propel you. And as I kind of look at how you're out there in the world, you know, talking about, you know, the motorcycle and the freedom and it, you know, I could see that connection. And I, I also want to make sure we talk about a little bit more of this idea of, you know, kind of the way media portrayed Asians at that time in America, because obviously we're dealing right now with a lot of, uh, you know, the protests, the Black right. Lives Matter, you know, right. the the issues that minorities are facing. And that's been a part of our culture for yeah. forever. So maybe we ought to just, you know, 
pause kind of your journey and talk a little bit about you know that experience and how you see it relating to what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, and I got to say, you know, the stuff that I'm doing now, uh, it rippling, you know, kind of like throughout your life. A lot of it's, I think, is subconscious, right? Mm-hmm. So back in the 20s, back when it was my 20s, trying to fit in through this uh, restaurant bar club that, in Hollywood that was very scenic and very uh, celebrity driven, or you know, whatever I'm doing now, uh, maybe using social media, right? So it doesn't matter what the thing is. So whether it's breakdancing or running a club or, 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 uh, or, or being active on social media, they're, they're, I'm sure there's a side to me, whether I'm aware of it or not, that is constantly approving, that is wanting that ticket into the quad, right? Acceptance, approval, wanting to fit in. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so, okay, well, let's just talk about that. So, you know, that's kind of what I was asking, you know, how long did you ride that? Because I know that you did kind of move into this, this phase that was about the clubs and the restaurants and the yeah. movies and, 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 you know, screenwriting. And, and so, you know, it, it, is that kind of how you see it is that it was like just a new way that you were kind of, kind of looking for what is the newest kind of most like almost age-appropriate or trendy way to kind of continue to be cool and accepted, even if it was subconscious? I mean, now looking back, is that really what was happening? I think it was, you know? And I think um, when we're young, tracks are laid, right? We start to wire and we start to uh, operate in a way uh, based on our environment and all that. And so um, when I I was, you know, three, four, five, and then, you know, uh, nine, 10, 11 in um, America trying to fit in, like that lays the tracks early. And so there's no way that at age 20 or whenever, if you're not aware of it, that it continues to happen, but it shows itself in different forms, right? So, you know, at that time, you're right. Uh, uh, I was running a restaurant bar club in Hollywood. And um, so uh, I think subconsciously, we, we just we just go there. That's just, a, you know, we're 90% of what we do is usually subconscious. Once we're aware of it, like I'm aware of it now, I could then, you know, uh, make different choices. I could then, you know, um, get myself to uh, lean into something new. You know, mm-hmm. depending on if I if I feel like it's it's healthy or unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, I got it. And and you know, I think we can just come back to the kind of minority piece because you know, there's some level of you wanting to fit in that's connected to that. But this sure. is also just a a thing that that kids, people, humans, if you're lucky, you, you catch it at some point. And to yeah. some degree, right? But everybody deals with, I know for me, I did too. That's why I relate to your story so much. Also not being very academically inclined or wasn't succeeding in the kind of academic environment and finding ways to to feel, you know, cool, to right. get that kind of support, that human need, you yeah. know, I think is a very common story. So talk a little bit about kind of how that started to play out as you entered into that next stage, the, the, the restaurant club, you know, kind of young adult, I know eventually you end up in a relationship. Um, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that part of your journey. Yeah, I think it was the uh, engine that was getting me to chase shiny things. So also it doesn't help when you're living in Los Angeles where there's palm trees and, you know, fancy cards. And I, I, I was in, Hollywood, uh, running a restaurant bar club that was a family business. My parents at this point had saved up enough money to go from 
you know, uh, the 7-Eleven convenience store, working there to buying a little hamburger shack in Burbank, did that for 10 years, bought a Pioneer chicken, which ended up being a Popeye chicken in Long Beach. And then ultimately, we bought this little restaurant bar in Hollywood and it catered to the post-production studio area. So it was very entertainment-based. Uh, I met a club promoter and he blew it up and we turned it into a supper club. And when that happened, uh, it tugged on my subconscious wanting to fit in. What was interesting was he was, uh, you know, we made a deal where he fronted that he owned the club. And so I was the guy in the, in the back washing the dishes and he was sitting with all the models and the, the bar. This is 2001, you know, like when that whole um, hip hop explosion and, you know, we had the, uh, the, the Lamborghinis outside and the 400 people waiting, uh, waiting outside. And I remember watching him being uh, envious, being jealous, wanting to be that person, but I was in the shadows, you know? And so um, I felt the tug of, of just chasing everything that is shining, that is external. So whether that is uh, money, cars, image, women, like all of that stuff. But at the same time, I was in a relationship. So there, there, was, there was that. And then of course that turned into a marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. Again, I think that tug is so prevalent, especially if you're out in LA, but you know, with the way that the media is today, it's everywhere and everybody is, 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 you know, kind of following the, the fashion, mm-hmm. the, the money, the, the fame, the, um, you know, TikTok, you name it, whatever it is, there's, you know, a lot of attention being focused in these kind of material ways. And it's you know, not that it's all bad, but, you know, it, it can be pretty consuming. And, and so, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of how that starts to play out. You, you're in a relationship, it turns into a marriage, you're, you know, kind of still you know, striving for something that's not quite there. You know, tell me a little bit about how that starts to unfold in your life, in your relationship. Yeah, so um, we sold the restaurant bar club um, because you know anything hot in Hollywood only lasts uh, six months or so. Um, so we were we're lucky enough to sell that, get out, and I was a screenwriter at the time. The writer in me was honest, so that was my solid self. Uh, the fact that it was in the movie business tugged on my pseudo self. So uh, yes, the writing was real and authentic, and I and I felt like I loved doing it. But the environment was uh, really tough for me because. Uh, it's very feast for famine. You know, I had friends who were um, becoming millionaires overnight. And um, I felt like uh, I was uh, not, I felt like a, um, like a struggling artist. And I sold, you know, I sold a movie to HBO. I sold a couple things, but I didn't, it, it didn't make enough to, to, to make a living at it. Right. And, and then my wife at the time was an actress and she was doing really well. So I just felt myself sinking and sinking um, pursuing something that didn't make me happy anymore. Uh, and I had enough talent at it, like raw talent where I was able to get management and, and have meetings and stuff. But it was just, it was tugging on a, a very shell-like version of, of me. And then after the divorce, uh, I was like, I was talking to my own therapist and he said, you know, if this isn't making you happy, because uh, I was locking myself into a Starbucks for 14 hours a day and just writing. I had no life. I had no friends. I didn't care. I thought that if I just sold that million dollar screenplay, right, then happy would come. Uh, and that's what I was chasing. Uh, and I, I had no life in doing so. So talking to my own therapist and uh, he's like, well, w- what do you want to do if you can't uh, make, make sell screenplays or, or make movies? And then I, 
I said, I want to do what you're doing. You know, if I can't move people by the masses, I want to do it one at a time. I love psychology. Um, and, and also he was a very uh, impactful uh, person in my life. And so he's like, go do it. And he says, you don't need a PhD. You just need a master's. Uh, what he didn't tell me about was the 3,000 hours after. <laughs> so, you know, at 35, I started all over. I went back to grad school, got my master's, and then uh, entered a long journey of getting hours and rebuilding myself, you know, mm-hmm. post-divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I want to talk about that. I want to back up, though, and talk a little bit about your marriage and your divorce because you're pretty open about it in your writing. And and I think, you know, you mentioned this kind of Starbucks striving, you're, you're grinding, you're writing. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of what happened in the marriage and how that uh, your, your kind of state at that time influenced the relationship or, or, or how much of the relationship was influenced by your childhood? You know, mm. un- unpack kind of what happens um, in your marriage at that state. I think, um, so my dad uh, was an alcoholic, right? Um, I have the addictive gene. I, I think at that time I was miserable. So we got married young, uh, relatively young, and uh, I wasn't a happy person. So what I brought into this relationship was a, a miserable fuck, was someone who would take other people hostage, be negative. I was always in my head wanting something better. I was never present uh, and I was very reactive. So, you know, the angry therapist came from me being angry and um, I didn't know how to control that. So uh, I was just not someone that was fun to be around, you know? And I think years of that, because uh, we were together for many years, I, you know, that combined with, um, I think her uh, seeing the world, being successful, you know, realizing that that she is young and maybe um, getting married at a young age wasn't the right answer, and all of that. I think the combination of all that uh, made it expire. I, I look back at it, and of course it was painful. But if it wasn't for that divorce, I mean, I don't, I don't know who I would be today. I mean, that was actually that was the first domino. Um, it was, it was one of the greatest. Um, act breaks, one of the greatest catalysts in my life was that divorce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It forced, forced me to start all over. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Sometimes, you know, you have to be forced to do it to really yeah. get the reset. Were you in therapy prior to uh, marriage or divorce or, or how did therapy enter into your life? Yeah, I was in it because I was trying to save my marriage. Um, but I don't know if I was really doing, you know, the work, as they say. Um, I think I was curious, you know, I was, uh, 31, 32. I think I was curious about this idea of being a better version of yourself. I think I was curious about stuff, but I think I was in therapy because I was panicking that my uh, marriage was coming to an end and I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't think I was doing it for me. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And yet you found a therapist. I mean, was this like your first shot at it? You found the guy that really connected to you and changed your life? Yes. Um, he changed my life, but he was also, it's, it's interesting because he was the uh, quintessential therapist, 50s, you know, wrinkle-free pants, matching sh- socks and the, the, the shirt and tie and all of that. And I remember one day uh, he said something to me that I'll never forget. Uh, when I said I wanted to be a therapist and, uh, you know, I was in the process, um, he asked me why. And I said, uh, at that time, I, I, I said, I just want uh, to make six figures have a, an office, like I want, I, you know, what the life that you're presenting seems really attractive to me. And he said, uh, you'll never make six figures as a therapist. And I said, what? Mm-hmm. And he said, you, you, you won't, it's, it's too hard. And I mean, I, he was projecting, you know, his insecurities mm-hmm. and where he was. 
and I was I remember leaving that office thinking, oh, he's actually human. He actually has insecurities. He's got self doubt. He's got he's projecting something onto me, and it fired me up because I was like, okay, I'm not going to make six figures. I'm going to make seven. Mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to prove you wrong. Uh, of course, my ego uh, and uh, the twenty something year old at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember that, and I, it it just really hit me um, almost from the universe that um, a therapist isn't necessarily a doctor. A therapist is uh, well, doctors are human humans too, but therapists are portrayed in a way that is very kind of cardboard cut out. And I got to see uh, a human behind that uh, that curtain, and uh, I don't know, it did something to me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. it's an interesting way that you digested that that comment. You obviously had enough kind of confidence or personal strength or clarity that you digested it as like, oh, I'm going to prove you wrong, or oh, I I see the insecurities, the projections. Rather mm-hmm. than to get deflated and just go, oh, maybe I I don't want to be a therapist. I mean, you that that says something right. about kind of your your strength or your passion for the work. There's something I, there. I I think that was what it took to spark something in me that got me fired up. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. If, if my if my reaction to that was, oh fuck, you're right. I don't want to do this. Then I would be defeated. And, and maybe I would have taken a different path. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, let me ask yeah. you, so, and, and this might be my own projection, but, um, you know, you had said an interest in psychology. I also, uh, one of the few positive academic experiences I did have was in my psych classes. And, you know, I and my family, my father was also an addict and and probably, you know, not ever diagnosed as one, but, but, um, the, the idea that I was supposed to be in business, go make money, be successful, do these things that were kind of typical manly things that you do. This is how I was raised, you know, his, his, his values didn't really allow for room like psychology. Uh, No, my mom was always good. She took us to a therapist when we were young. Um, you know, there was, there was that, there was an opening for it, but I had this kind of very early child programming, but that was not what you did. That was like Mm -hmm. something you were interested in. So, so I'm curious, you know, you mentioned your father being an addict. You mentioned kind of the family background. Uh, was, was psychology something that you had to kind of like do later because it wasn't, like acceptable early or was it something that you just didn't really get exposed to? Like, t- tell me a little bit about whatever might yeah. have been there from a family standpoint. Um, I, I wasn't exposed to it at all. I mean, the, I, I, this idea of emotional intelligence and that, that's not, that wasn't even a thing, especially, you know, my, ki- my, my, my parents are, they're amazing, but they're, um, and my dad's passed, but they're, um, they, they came from a world where it's uh, um, a, Poverty stricken. I mean, you know, psychology is is a luxury, right? They came from a world where uh, my dad was stealing rice and getting plates thrown at his head, and my my mom, I think at fifteen, was carrying you know pails of water to her village. They came from a world where they're um, set on survival, you know. And so when they came to America, all they cared about was feeding us, um, you know, buying us Levi's, uh, making sure that we fit in, and and it wasn't about. Um, they didn't have any tools, you know, they don't know what a safe space looks like. And so, yeah, I, I don't, um, I, I, I don't blame them, but I know that the effects of that, it, you know, it, it, it messed me up in a way. And I also have, I have genes, um, I have addictive genes. And so them never being around and being exposed to things like um, pornography and stuff like that at a very early age, you know, 9, 10, 11, um, watching the Playboy t- channel and my parents' room, stuff like that. 
all of that I think contributes to me and my my weaknesses, my struggles, you know, my addictions, all of that stuff. Yeah, no question. I think it's a very common story too, and one that's really not yeah. brought forward as much as it probably needs to be and should be. And I think it's really one of the kind of brilliant things about what you're doing. And I I really mean that. I mean, I, I think it's it's so simple, but it's so um, necessary and and really smart. Uh, and and it's and, and and you know, this is just my kind of. Uh, you know, perception of what you're doing, you're really bringing the break dancer, you're really bringing the skateboarder, the BMX rider into therapy, you know, kind of circling back around to that in that you're just being kind of authentically who you are as you do this work, uh, as opposed to what society or, you know, some other mentor or academic or whoever told you what or tells us what therapy is supposed to be you're you're bringing this kind of just authentic self to the work which i think really resonates with people yeah and I, uh, and thank you i appreciate that that's that means a lot to me and I, and i'm trying you know i i struggle daily but uh i think the fork in the road was cuz i tried i tried to to wear the slacks and the shirt and tie and tuck my shirt in I worked in residential for um, a long time in private centers and um, got paid a lot in Malibu to run groups and stuff like that. Um, and it just didn't feel honest to me. And I remember when I came home and I was on my little Tumblr blog at the time, uh, I called it the Your Therapist and I was all active on there. I felt like Clark, uh, I felt like Superman, you know, I, and I felt like Clark Kent at work pushing the mail cart. And then at home, when I was making videos and creating online communities and playing around with uh, technology and, and meeting people, at the CrossFit box, CrossFit box, or the, around the lake, and just kind of working unconventional ways. I remember I, I did groups in a, a beat up a coffee shop in an alleyway, alleyway in, in K Town, and there was something about that 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 just I don't know. It really resonated with me, and I, I listened to my my um, my solid self or my authentic self, uh, my truth, for the first time by feeding that instead of um, being a quote unquote traditional therapist. And when, when I did that, everything opened up, you know, and I feel like when you listen to that authentic voice, which usually is a small whisper, um, it's not a loud thundering voice because we rarely listen to it. I think that's when stars line up. I think that's when you're repositioned uh, to run toward your true north. I had no idea. I just did what I felt like um, that was honest to me for the first time in my life. Like that was important. And that was the only thing that was important. So mm -hmm. I just went with it, you know? Mm -hmm. You just had a feeling that was strong enough that you wanted to go with it. And, and, and then like in doing that, you saw like, oh, maybe there's something there and I'm going to keep following these feelings. And, and I know you said, you know, it's still a struggle and I appreciate your humility because, you know, that's just true. I, I believe you when you say that, you know, that every day it's still kind of a, a challenge to make sure. And, and and I'd like for you to just talk a little bit about that because, you know, you kind of alluded to this earlier that, you know, there's this kind of need to be liked or to be received or to get that emotional fuel. And, you know, certainly in this kind of influencer world and with the kind of emergence of social media and, and you know, being out there with, with best-selling books and, and on and on and on, you know, you're, you're known, you're a personality. I mean, how, how is that for you? Are you still having to kind of check in to fight against the you know, get into the addictiveness of the, of the, you know, work 
Uh, you know, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I have this kind of deep fear of success because I don't trust myself and my insecurities. Um, I feel like because I'm not famous right now and I'm, I'm, I'm the guy, you know, in his closet talking into a microphone and I've got a few followers, but I'm not like famous, famous. And so because of that, there's safety in it, right? Um, it doesn't tug on the pseudo side, right? Uh, so I'm able to kind of go under the radar and, and, and be strong and speak my truth. Um, if I was if I was to like you know become you know more famous or have you know a, 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 you know a few million followers or whatever it is, uh, then the fear is that I'm not going to be strong enough. You know that I, I will whatever you want to call it sell out or be someone different or start pulling from my pseudo instead of solid and um, start living a life that's not authentic. You know and start being a hypocrite and and that's one of my biggest fears. I'm hoping that because I'm 47 now. Uh, as I get older and now I have a daughter, I'll get stronger and stronger and uh, success w- w- uh, or things outside of self won't um, you know, pull me away from who I am, hopefully. So that's, that's kind of what I'm hoping. But it is a daily struggle because you know, the, the world today, uh, especially with the invention of social media, you know, it's very different than it was you know, back in the 80s when there was just television and the celebrities were movie stars and TV. They were outside of self. They weren't real. Now celebrities are your next door neighbor, or you know <laughs> the girl you went to high school with who has yeah. got you know five million followers. Um, so because the walls down now and celebrities dead, because we have a, a, a megaphone and we could tell our story with our phone, um, I think it's harder now to pull from your authentic self. I think there's more um, influence from outside and, and media you yeah. know, to shake. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very true. And it's funny, it's all relative because um, I, I think uh, you're pretty famous from my standpoint, just because I'm, I'm a fan. I mean, I, I, uh, I have to tell you, I was, when I read, I used to be a miserable fuck. Um, the, my, my wife uh, used to like, I found her like constantly putting the book in the, in the drawer because so, so the title was really um, just, you know, like she, she was, you know, are you miserable? Are you okay? You know, like right, what, right. what is this book you're reading? You know, the angry therapist. Right. Um, but uh, I just, uh, you know, really uh, enjoyed the book and, you know, been enjoying following what you're doing. And, and I know that you have pivoted really, you were one of the kind of early pioneers to move to uh, online life coaching from uh, licensed therapy. Yeah. And I know you're doing a lot with coaching. I love how you do the the Voxer quick one hitters and mm-hmm. you know how you've kind of supplied some different product types, including a, a, a coaching program for people to learn how to coach. There's so much there that you've kind of built out. Talk a little bit about coaching and the difference between therapy and coaching from your perspective sure. and kind of how that's starting to play a role in your life. Yeah, and I um I didn't set out to create a lot of digital products or you know to scale something or monetize. I, I I'm not I'm not smart enough for that. I I just I just had this one mission to work in a way that's honest to me. That's all I cared about. And so uh, when I was a therapist, I felt very constricted. I got fired from a uh, I remember from a, a high end eating disorder treatment center because I wanted to bring in DVDs back when that was a thing to play movie scenes as interventions because I didn't want to pull up the old uh, generic interventions from the filing cabinet. And I got fired for that. 
And I was like, you know what? This just doesn't feel honest to me anymore. So by calling myself a coach, I was able to, um, because there's no board, right? With coaches, um, I was able to now work unconventionally or work in a way that felt more honest to me. So I called myself a coach. I wanted to do Skype sessions, you know, when Skype first came out with the, with webcams and people were on dial up and they were like this, but I was like, this is going to change the world. I wanted to uh, meet people at the park or at the gym or walk, take walks around lakes because I thought if we're going to talk about life, let's do life while we're talking. I wanted to meet people at coffee shops because uh, I didn't want an office. I hate, I hate this idea of an office. Uh, and so I just started living that way and people responded and I think they thought it was refreshing that um, a therapist slash coach uh, will meet them where they're at, you know? <laughs> and so they never, uh, and this is 10 years ago, they never saw uh, someone like this. And also, especially maybe being Korean and maybe being a dude and also, you know, uh, uh, using, dropping F-bombs and just being myself and rolling up with jeans and a t-shirt. Maybe they thought it was uh, someone humanizing himself, you know? And so I think my blog created the soil which is, this is who I am. I'm broken. I'm divorced. You know, I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm on my own journey. And so then when, we, when they met me, they already knew a lot about me and how I worked. Uh, so I, I feel like I had more buy-in, more traction. And then I was like, this is how, this is a new way, man. Like this is, you know, the with you instead of at you. Uh, and so in my kitchen, in my underwear, I developed a uh, coaching program. And now it's called uh, Journey, J-R-N-I, and it's, it's bigger than me. So it's a comp- full-on company now with uh, you know, um, a whole team. Uh, and yeah, we've graduated like a thousand coaches and it blows my mind. Incredible. Yeah, I yeah. think it's terrific. And I, and I just you know, keep kind of coming back to this, like you following your instincts that, you know, solid self, as you say, you know, that, you know, that, that really was always there in how you were operating as a kid and, and continuing to kind of look for it and find it and then trust it, learning to trust it, you know, even inside of the therapy space, seeing that Skype and coaching and being able to roll up in jeans, you know, I, I relate to that as I started my own business I started mm-hmm. my business. It's, it's really kind of an interesting thing. I think it's like a generational thing. You and I are close in age where like wearing jeans to work was like such a big deal. You know, like <laughs> I just wanted to wear jeans and t-shirts and and that like by itself felt like such a giant win. You know, today I barely, you know, get out of my shorts and <laughs> work right. at home. But like, you know, Remember that was they, such they, a deal. Yeah, they would call it casual Fridays. Right. And you could only, right in the office, you could only wear jeans on that Friday. And that was like a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I just love it. So this is, you know, really exactly why I, I really enjoy your work and, and you know, what this podcast is about. It's really about trying to find that solid self, find that authentic self, trust yourself, know that you've got these kind of gifts inside and that they're really, really powerful that, that can be a part of what you do. Uh, and you've done so much with that. Tell me kind of what's on the horizon. I know you're still writing. Uh, I know you've talked about Single on Purpose, your 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 next book. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about kind of what else is, where are you going with, with this um, work? I, I'm going to continue to uh, uh, put action behind what is honest to me. I'm going to continue to run toward my true north and it changes all the time. And so what I got fired about after the Miserable Fuck book was 
when I was coaching people in relationships, mostly single women, how frustrated they, they were with the dating landscape and how toxic it is. And there's now, you know, ghosting and dick pics and we become baseball cards basically. And so I felt like, oh, I'm going to try to make my dent and I'm going to write a book about um, finding yourself first, you know, and that being single doesn't mean you're, you're defective, right? Barbie never needed Ken. <laughs> she just needed that Corvette, right? Uh, and it's like us, society, putting the pressure on people to be with someone because that's what success or happy looks like. So that book is done and it's uh, Harper is distributing it uh, again, which I'm super grateful for. And uh, that'll be out uh, January 2001. So I don't know where that's going to lead, but I'll continue that conversation because it's, it's honest to me. And then I'm doing, um, you know, I'm still playing in the sandbox. So um, now I'm texting people. I think that's going to be, you know, the, the new landscape. I just created something called The Lab, which is like this Zoom uh, classes. It's like class pass, but for wellness. And so people, especially uh, with the pandemic, people are really gravitating toward uh, working on themselves from home. So I think that's going to be new and exciting. So uh, I'm just doing what I've always done, you know, and, and seeing where it goes. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, yeah. and I do want to come back and talk a little bit about kind of, you know, the being Asian starting in Georgia and the minorities and, 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 and the feeling and, and, and what's going on today. Talk a little bit about kind of how you see the world today um, as we're seeing the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. really starting to make a difference. Um, tell me about kind of your perspective on that. I think, uh, God, I, I guess I want to start with saying that the way that I view the pandemic and us being forced to stay at home is it forces us to sit with ourselves. And whenever we're forced to sit with ourselves, shit's going to come up, right? And it, I think this is either going to harden people or soften people. Um, and it, I think it's a great opportunity to really reevaluate judgment, to evaluate uh, how we see people, uh, racism, um, but but not just racism, just judgment in general, right? Mm-hmm. So not just about color of your skin, but how we judge people, how we judge ourselves. And it's a great opportunity to kind of shake that whole life edge of sketch and start over. Uh, so, but for me, with my uh, story growing up in America and trying to be cool and, and as an Asian American, I, I, I think today I finally uh, am happy that I'm Korean. And most of my life, especially early on, I was embarrassed of it. I didn't want to be Korean. I didn't want to speak Korean or eat kimchi and all of that. Now I've come to not only accept it, but embrace it, you know, and uh, it's been a struggle. It's been a journey. Uh, but I think there's a lot of good happening in the world as far as like how uh, Asian Americans, Americans are portrayed uh, in media. You know, and, and I think there's a lot of room. You know, we still haven't seen like an Asian American James Bond, or mm-hmm. you know, but or an Asian American who doesn't know kung fu. You know, but mm-hmm. um, but I think it's changing, and I think this progression, and I think uh, uh, it's an exciting time because um, the world's being shaken up right now. You know, yeah. and I'm curious to see what emerges from this. Yeah, and and I think you're you're really. Uh, touching on something important, and I was going to ask you also about your feelings about the pandemic, but you you kind of answered that this idea of judgment, you know, and period, you know, that that we judge people by their race, color, their skin, or or also we judge people by their work and their career choices, and they're they're willing to conform, you know, how people conform. I mean, we're we're talking a lot about that. This judgment is such a powerful and and potentially dangerous 
you know, mindset, and it's so prevalent. We're all guilty of it. Uh, and, and and I am curious, you know, when you say you think that we could harden or soften, um, you know, how much of what you're trying to do is really with that in mind that you, you're you're trying to be a part of this shift uh, towards you know making people softer or better or uh, more themselves. Yeah, I think for me, I don't try to think of um, how I can change people because I don't think that works. I think for me, it's like, how can I keep living a life that's honest, that is, uh, uh, you know, putting action behind uh, what I what I what I talk about? So, like non-judgment, pulling from curiosity, things like solid self. Um, how can I continue to uh, go down that path? Because I think if I do, the the universe is going to sort out where it lands for people. You know, I think that. If I start to take the wheel of that, I'm going to be lukewarm. I'm not going to be potent. I'm not going to be effective, right? So I'm going to start living outside in instead of inside out. I think our potential is always when we're living inside out and allowing that ripple to go where it's going to go. And that's none of your business. Uh, and you start to live a life that's more through you instead of like by you. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't want to take on the responsibility or think that I'm going to, you know, make this much impact or, you know, even when I publish a book, I, I put my head down, write it. And then, you know, it's like, it's like uh, letting a, a balloon go. Uh, you just let it go and, and see where it lands. And, it, and if it helps people, it's great. And if no one reads it, then that's, that is what it is. Yeah. It's a great, I think that's a great perspective and a healthy and, and helpful to hear that, you know, you're really still focused on yourself. You're still focused on really getting aligned and continuing to live into that solid self and, and just, operate from there. And, 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 you know, I still hear that, like, hopefully for me, at least like, hopefully that does make a difference for people. You know, mm-hmm. hopefully people are, um, you know, feeling more themselves, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, I call that change, but you know, at the end of the day, hopefully by you modeling what you're modeling, others will, you know, kind of be able to find themselves in a way that does uh, make their lives better and make the world a better place. I really love the word catalyst. You know, mm-hmm. and I think you're a catalyst, right? Obviously, um, in your su- su- success with business, but also everything that you're doing, that you're going to be one point in someone's journey, and just just be a bright one, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and the rest is is really not up to you. So, yeah. uh, and also, I love what you just said, like keep working on yourself, because I think when you let go of that is when you drift by mm-hmm. default. That's just how it is, you know. And so it's something that we have. It's a bike we need to pedal for the rest of our lives, or or we will drift or sway. Uh, me too. Anyone, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just ask you uh, one last question. You know, I know that you uh, have really, you know, found your kind of uh, ways to, to have some fun, to, mm-hmm. to, you know, be fully expressed, you know, that you, you enjoyed working out and you, you like your motorcycles and your, your tattoos and your, your culture, you know, tell yeah. me a little bit about like, you know, what's, what's fun for you right now? What's fueling you? What, what kind of stuff are you, you know, just enjoying life with? Um, I'm going to uh, say something that's not so sexy. It's, um, it's being a dad. It's finding um, moments when you're looking at your uh, daughter, seeing the, the growth, because uh, it happens so fast uh, in a human being. And the, I mean, it's amazing, man. Like what, how much changes in a week and how they see the world and being a part of that. Uh, but it comes in moments, right? So it's uh, little moments sprinkled in between the sleepless nights and the diapers and all that. Uh, but I'm finding that as a new experience in my life. But also, um, you know, I'm going to go on a, a dirt bike adventure in Alaska uh, soon. And I'm 
doing everything that I still love to do, like movement and um, writing. I'm falling back in love with writing again. So uh, a lot of the same, but through new lenses. You know? Yeah. Well, I think that's that's a great answer. I've got three kids myself and, you know, you, you're having children later. I had them when I was young. Um, I think there's a lot of real um, benefit to having that perspective um, as a father now that, that, you know, that can be the thing that you get to fully embrace and enjoy. Um, you know, I, my, my kids are, are older and, and I have that perspective now in my life too. I didn't always have it when I was, um, younger, as much as I adore them and love them, um, you know, I was still trying to really find my way with my business and my career. Um, you know, I get to, in fact, I just went for a run with my son right before we do this. And there's nothing better than just, you know, carving out 20 minutes to be with them. Um, so it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I'm sure you will, you are a great father. And thank you for just what you're doing and taking the time to to do this and um, just uh, happy to know you. Uh, any any kind of final thoughts or, or want to make sure people know where to find you? We'll put it in the notes, but anything you want to kind of wrap up with? Yeah. Um, well, also, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, just also as, a, as another, another man, another father, um, we have a lot of overlap. Um, also, what you're doing is very inspiring. So, so I appreciate that. Um, I, I guess I want to end with... Uh, three words and it's uh, to, to trust your story. I think most people want to rip out chapters. I think most people um, are ashamed of what happened in their story. Um, but I think our story is the most powerful and valuable thing that you will ever own. Um, our stories are uniquely ours, you know? And so uh, we got to embrace it. We got to share it. We got to trust it. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.